Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we are passionate about sharing the hope of the gospel until Christ is formed in you. Good morning. Welcome to Saltbox. I'm glad you're here. Nathan, I see you in the front row. Glad you're here. Um, I want to look into the camera and welcome all those who are online. Uh, If this is your first time, we're glad that you're here. Uh, If you are a seeker or a doubter or an atheist or a questioner or a hurt Christian or anything else, I want to say welcome. This is a safe place to be in your journey. Uh, We are going through the book of Acts. Um, I am actually in Acts 12, and I'm going to break all the rules of preaching this morning, and we're going to try to read the chapter 12, the 12th chapter of Acts. Uh, So open your Bible. If you're on your phone, scroll there. I'm reading out of an NIV um, Bible. And I think if I set the table this morning with Acts chapter 12, it would be that we're in these um, sort of ever-widening concentric circles, if you will. And by that, I mean like when you throw a rock into a pond, these like widening concentric circles go out from there. But the word of God is spreading rapidly in the book of Acts as we're going through it. Dr. Luke, who is a Gentile, is writing about it and documenting it. And he's describing, he's about to describe the launch of the very first uh, missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, out of this city called Antioch. And yet, before we get there, we have to deal with a massive setback. Some of you may have walked in this morning and would say, I am in the middle of a massive setback. Say that with me. Setback. So chapter 12 in Acts is all about setbacks. And I actually called it the end of the story, although you're not going to understand that until the end. Uh, but let me, let me read something by someone I love. His name's Charles Spurgeon. And you're not going to be able to write it down. It's too long, so take a deep breath. And if you want to know where it came from, then grab Carol up here, and we'll send you an email and tell you where it came from. But here's what he said, <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon. All events are under the control of providence. Consequently, all trials of our outward life are traceable at once to the great first cause. Out of the golden gate of God's ordinance, the armies of trial march forth in array, clad in their iron armor and armed with weapons of war. All providences are doors to trial. Even our mercies, like roses, have their thorns. Men and women may be drowned in seas of prosperity as well as in rivers of affliction. Our mountains are not too high. Our valleys are not too low for temptations. Trials lurk on all roads, everywhere, above and beneath. We are beset and surrounded by dangers. Yet no shower falls unpermitted from the threatening cloud. Every drop has its order as it hastens to the earth. The trials which come from God are sent to prove and strengthen our graces. And so it wants to illustrate the power of divine grace, to test the genuineness of our virtues, and to add to their energy. Our Lord Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and superabundant love, set so high a value upon his people and his faith that he will not screen them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. 
Father, I pray as we open your word this morning and read Acts chapter 12 and we read about the trials or the setbacks or the difficulties of the New Testament church, that you would also allow us to pivot in our own lives and apply the same truths there. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Psalms 11.5 actually says the Lord tests the righteous. The New Testament version of that would be the Lord tests those who, who are his sons and daughters. So let's just start reading here at how God is going to test this fledgling church. And here's what we're going to basically look at this morning. We're going to look at the God who sees us in our trials. We're looking to look at the God who hears us. Um, in our prayers. We're going to take a look at the God who deals with our enemies. And then there's one little thing I'm going to save at the end. It's the great theological climax of this sermon. So I'm going to keep it a secret until the end. Okay. All right. Good enough. We'll laugh about it when we get there. Okay. So uh, we're going to start reading in Acts chapter 12. And uh, here we go. It was about this same time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Verse 3, and then we'll pause. He saw that this met with approval among the Jews, so he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Okay, if, if you're new here and you've never like been in Acts or you haven't been following along, this is going to be like, what is this guy talking about? Hang on, bear with us, we're going to dig in here. If you've been following along, then you know kind of where we are. But let's set the table with a couple of things here. Um, King Herod, there's a couple of King Herods. Uh, so there is um, King Herod the Great, and King Herod the Great was the guy that executed the two-year and under babies in Bethlehem when... Jesus was born, that's right, you can go look that up if you want. Then you have Herod Antipodus, uh, who was the uncle of this guy, this Herod, and he was the guy who, who knows, killed Jesus. He he tried Jesus and sent him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified and killed. And then you have this Herod. Now, just judging based on that, are the Herods very popular in, uh, in heaven? No. Okay, so just let's just start the whole chapter out like that. These guys, uh, the collective Herods and the legacy around them may be the arch enemies of God and Christians and faith. They're out all for their own selfish ambition. So immediately you know it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now, verse 2, he had James, the brother of John. Okay, so James and... John. Uh, This gets a little bit confusing. I'm going to try to do the same thing real fast. But there's three Jameses in the New Testament. There's a super common name back then. But three Jameses in the New Testament that you should maybe know about. You had James, the son of Alphaeus, who they called him James the Less or James the Little. And it meant he was smaller or younger. It didn't mean he was like less important. Can you imagine James the Less? You're going to be Matthew the Less. I mean, we'd take it as an insult, but it just meant, it just meant either small in stature um, or age. Um, but he was one of the 12 apostles. Then you have James, the brother of Jesus, who's going to show up in this chapter, actually. We'll see that later. Um, but anyone know how James, the brother of Jesus, interacted with Jesus during Jesus' life? He did not like him. He did not like him. And he was really against him until he saw his brother resurrected, his half-brother resurrected, and then ascended um, back to heaven. So that's the other James. And then the third James um, is James the Great, who is the brother of John. He's known as a son of thunder. Why might he be called a son of thunder? 
probably had a big old fiery attitude. He probably ran at his mouth and said things he shouldn't. He was probably a little hot under the collar, as you can imagine. But he's the son of Zebedee and Salome. So um, here's it in a nutshell. He had James. Now, Jesus, if we studied uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he had an inner circle of three. And I love Jesus because you get, um, of, of even the three, he probably had a one, which was John. Um, then he had three, Peter, James, and John. Then he had 12 apostles. Then he probably had 72 disciples, which included some women. And then he had 500, which included men and women. So he had these like even concentric circles of relationship. But James would have been um, one of the closest three to our Lord Jesus. Okay? So what is also um, kind of just a head scratcher right here is I could take you. We're not going to go there at this moment. But Jesus warned both James the Great, or James, if you will, and John the Beloved, his brother. Um, they were asking for the best seats in the kingdom. And he warned them. Jesus said to both of them, hey, you're going to drink the cup I drink, and you're going to share in my baptism. Now, what baptism is he likely talking about? His death. So when Jesus said that, these guys are like young, arrogant whippersnappers. Can we have the best seat in the kingdom? And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, you're going to be baptized with my baptism. Meaning, James, you're going to die with the sword. I mean, Jesus foretold this. But what, what I can't sort out, and there's a mystery here in the kingdom of God, and if you hang out with us any length of time, I am very comfortable with the mystery of God. I don't feel like we have to sort it all out. But when Jesus said that, you have John the Beloved, who is the only one of the original apostles, uh, other than um, uh, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, but the only one of the original 11 who followed Jesus their whole lives, who lives and dies of old age. So you have John who dies of old age, and you have James who's killed um, by the sword. He's the second martyr in the book of Acts. And what's also amazing is John ends up on this little isle of Patmos working hard, doing hard labor in the salt mines. So what is beyond my comprehension, and I can't open it or sort it out, but when Jesus said, hey, you're going to suffer, you're going to drink the cup I drink, you're going to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, it meant simultaneously, John, you're going to go and do hard labor in the salt mines of Patmos, and James, you're going to be killed with the sword. And how, how, there's, a, there's a mystery there that I can't fully sort. But I want you to think here for just a minute. How is uh, John, one of the leaders of this new fledgling Jerusalem experiment church, if you will, how is John feeling when his brother is killed? Come on. Are we sad? Are we dejected? Are we depressed? Might we distrust God? Might we be tempted to turn our back on God? Might we be tempted to harbor bitterness or disappointment or animosity? Might we want to even go kind of sit in our... our he may have even wanted to sit in sort of almost a victim mentality and, and, and run from God, distrusting him. So all of a sudden, Herod is rising up. He is persecuting the church. James gets killed with the sword. Now, this is also really important. If they're going to kill someone privately, they're not going to use a sword. So the sword means that this was a public execution. It meant that Herod came down in all of his pomp and glory, and there was a big trial before everybody, and all the masses and mobs were all there. And then at the end of it, they condemned him to die, and they took out a sword and they beheaded him in front of everybody. Big public spectacle. And the church does what? Scatters. Churches all over the place. I mean, people are going, is God even real? Was Jesus really God? Do we really believe what happened? People are doubting. People are in faith crises. They're going, maybe we shouldn't be trusting him. I mean, all, the, Stephen was killed, and now Peter's been out sharing with Gentiles, and now here James, who was one of our leaders, has just been killed. And then, to make matters worse, Herod goes and arrests who? 
Peter, who is the first pastor of the first church? And he's actually going to pass on his title in this chapter. We're going to see it in a few minutes. But the, so, so Peter is now arrested, and let's just read that. Um, <clears throat> uh, he had James, this is Herod, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, verse 3, when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews. So the Jews all hated Herod for all sorts of reasons, but primarily because of his affiliation um, with the Romans, uh, and he was raised and, and by them, loved them, and so they, they hated him. So Herod spent his whole life, this Herod, trying to win the approval of the Jews. So when he killed James, what did he discover? They loved him, because who do the Jews hate? Christians in this New Testament church. So they have seething hatred to this New Testament church and the leaders. So when James gets killed, man, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and probably uh, all the Zealots, everybody is just absolutely excited um, that James has been killed. So Herod's like, well, I'm going to go arrest Peter. Let's go arrest the head of the whole church. Come on. So he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now, this is important. The only reason it, it, it is during um, Passover, that's what that means. But it, it, the reason it is important is Herod can't have a public trial during a Jewish high holy festival. So, what's he have to do? Put him in prison. Like, he has to wait. So you know immediately that he intends to do the same thing to Peter that he did to James, which is have this big public trial, um, embarrass and shame the New Testament church, and then kill Peter in front of everyone just to display his greatness, the greatness of Rome, the greatness of um, his armies and whatever. Uh, so here we go. He proceeded to seize Peter also. Uh, this happened during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Verse 4. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. There's these unusual little details in Scripture. Maybe you've never wondered that, but I always do. Unusual. Like, why are you telling us, uh, Luke, four squads, four soldiers? There's four watches of the day and night. So this is round-the-clock care. So there's four groups. So two, uh, two soldiers would go in and would have been chained to Peter, one on each side. Um, and then two soldiers would have been at the door to his cell. So he's just telling you he is well guarded. Peter has already, earlier in Acts, has a documented escape from prison supernaturally. So what's Herod going to do? Make sure it doesn't happen again. Not only that, I'm going to chain you to two, you know, guards. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, Herod uh, intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, which means execution. Okay. So the first thing, before we keep going there in verse 5, the first thing I just want to point out or I want you to grab is this is the God who sees your trials. This is the God that sees our trials. And I think if we fully injected ourselves into the New Testament church, I can't prove it, but I would be willing to bet there's people who are abandoning their faith. There's people who are just going, I'm just going to stay home for a while. You know, I'm going to watch online church. I'm I'm not going to go hang out with them too much. I don't want to be near them. But like the scattering, and then people are packing up their families and loading their donkeys and wagons, and they're leaving the city, right? People are moving to other places. So they're in this like grave crisis. And I don't have time this morning, but we could trace church history, and there are like these rhythms throughout all of church history between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, um, advance and retreat, and, and yet nothing we're going to see here will ultimately prevail, even hell, even death, against King Jesus and against his body. 
So this is the God who sees us in our trials. Okay, so for the New Testament church, just to restate this, I think the situation looks bleak. It looks home, hopeless. They're scared. They are running. They feel powerless. And they're, they're standing up against um, Herod and all the armies of Rome. And so when this weak, powerless, fledgling infant church is standing up against Herod and the Roman armies, what is the one thing they can do? Pray. Pray. Okay. Let's go for it. There's people in this room, there's people in our church that are facing things in their life right now. And all you can do is pray. In our powerlessness, in our lack, in our weakness, God's glory and strength and presence is manifest most powerfully. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Verse 6, that night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Okay, so what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. He's chained both sides to these two guards. Now, uh, go ahead, cast judgment on Peter. He's getting ready to be brought to trial and killed the next morning. And what's he doing? Okay, we're going to find, if you stick around here, we're going to find in a few chapters that the Apostle Paul, sitting in a prison cell, he and a guy named Silas, and anyone happen to know when they're in a prison cell, chained between guards, what they do? They sing hymns. They're beaten. Their backs are, I mean, they are an absolute wreck. They're bloody, messy, and they are singing hymns. Now, you have Peter over here sleeping, and Paul over here. Now, I want to propose to you that both are equally spiritual. Because any man on the eve of his execution that can lay down in a dank, musty, moldy, rat-filled prison, chained between two Roman guards, and... I mean, he's trusting Jesus, right? I mean, I, I would actually look at Paul's act of, like, sacrifice of praise while he's bloodied and beaten, and Peter's sacrifice of praise as, as an act of enormous faith because anyone that has that kind of chutzpah, and Peter actually was told by Jesus, I'm not going to go there, but Peter was told by Jesus the same thing. You're going to drink the cup I drank. You're going to be baptized with the same baptism. So Peter already knows what's going to happen. He's going to die. He knows it. And he may just be absolutely at peace with it. He's like, okay, this is the end. I don't know. And we don't know from Scripture. So there is Peter sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries uh, stood guard at the entrance. Now, go back to verse 5. What is the church doing? Earnestly praying. Earnestly praying. Okay, second point this morning. This is the God who hears our prayers. Some of you are sitting out there watching online, and you would say, God does not hear my prayer. He is not listening to me. And I would say to you, just because he is not responding in the way you think he should, the timetable you think he should, or giving you the results that you think he should, does not mean that he is not hearing, listening, and even acting on behalf of your prayers. Okay. So, church is there praying, 
Verse 7, suddenly, I love when the Bible says suddenly or but God, it's about, everything's about to get good because God is interrupting the like human earth whatever with the supernatural kingdom of God. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone up in the cell. Now what's Peter stay doing? It says he struck Peter. So what's Peter stay doing when the angel shows up? He's gone. So the angel literally has to, he struck Peter. It doesn't say if he kicked him or if he bent over and hit him, but he has to literally wake him. Okay, so suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. It must be that the guards are also sleeping or else they've just fallen under the power of God. We have no idea. Um, But he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now, let's just pause here for just a second. Did the chains fall off James's wrists? What has just happened? James was killed. Okay, hold in tension. Because there is a tension here, and I can't unpack it, but there is a time when God calls his beloved home to Jesus. I'm actually doing a memorial service later this afternoon. And there is a time when God calls someone home. And there's a mystery there. And there's another time where God steps in and he breaks the chains off someone's wrist and he leads them out supernaturally. Both are holy and sovereign acts of God. And we sort of in our humanness tend to think we would glorify the latter and might diminish or even look down on the person who experienced the former. But there is a supernatural sovereign thing that God does. And in God's economy, uh, eternity uh, of eternity, this human life and our 70, 80 years or whatever we have, 90 years, are just a dot. The larger kingdom of God is this eternal, it had no beginning, it has no end, and we will exist in it, those of us who are in Christ and we're escorted into eternity, we will exist with him in that place forever. So, so this is God's perspective even on this light and um, the, the trials and the light and difficult and short human existence is very different from yours and mine. Okay. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now, I think Dr. Luke, who's writing this, is intentionally making a connection between verse 5 and verse 7. The church is earnestly praying, and the angel shows up and leads Peter to freedom. Okay, verse 8. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. I mean, Peter took off his outer garment. I mean, he was definitely just made himself comfortable, and he's sleeping in this little cell. And Peter... Did so. Now, I just want to flip this for just a second. What if Peter was belligerent? I don't want to. I'm going to stay here. I know we think that's funny, but so many Christians, God shows up, whether it's in a still small voice, whether it's through a friend, whether it's in the word, whether it's through someone that you walk with, and God speaks clearly either in your heart, in your mind, um, through even some supernatural way or through a person who's interacting with you, and you go, no thanks. I'm going to stay here in my cell. 
Now, in Peter's case, we'd go, surely not. Why would he ever do that? It's this nasty, rat-infested sewer place. Of course he's going to get up and go. But let me tell you, us as Christians, there are times when God breaks in, either naturally or supernaturally, and offers us a way out. And we sit there because we've become more comfortable staying in what we know than risking the newness of what we don't. What is going to be on the other side of this? Peter could be going, well, what if I walk out of the cell and a whole army of Herod's guys come at me and someone pokes me through with a sword and I die there? It's safer to stay. Like, we never think of that, but it, it is literally, it is possible as Peter exits this cell that guards could see him and they all charge him and rush him and end up killing him, right? Peter could go, no, 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 man. It's, I know you're shiny and stuff, but it's safer to stay here. Okay. So the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Some of you might be sitting in something today, and you need to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to move. It's time to stop sitting on it. It's time to stop doing the same old thing and hoping something changes. Nope, do something different. Get up. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Verse 9. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. It's like he hadn't had his yellow truck coffee, had he? He's like, Ugh. So I guess, I guess what I can only assume that what Dr. Luke captured from Peter when they had this conversation, because I can imagine Dr. Luke sitting down and saying, tell me about what it was like in the prison. And so Peter tells him, and then Dr. Luke writes it down. But at this point, Peter must have been so groggy and so like uncertain of even what was happening, he's not even sure it's real. And, and remember, just a chapter or two earlier, he's just had a vision and seen like a, he had a trance and seen a vision, right? So it's not unlikely or unnatural for Peter to experience something like that. So suddenly... Um, here we are, uh, verse 9, Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Okay. They passed the first and second guards. So I, they passed the guards in the cell. They passed, and I don't know if the first guards would have been at the door, and then they passed another outer door, and then they finally come to this outer iron gate that leads into, like, total freedom. And I can only imagine Peter's just waiting for someone to come out of somewhere and get him. But here he is. He's starting to come to himself, um, and they went through it. Oh, wait, let's read that again. They, uh, verse 10, they passed the first and second guards. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. That's cool. I mean, boom, the door just boom. This isn't like you're, you know, punch your little key code and your gate opens. No, no, no. This is like the Lord of glory stood there and the iron gates went boom. Yeah, that's worth woohooing. Thank you. Come on. I mean, that's a woohoo. Somebody, some of y'all need an iron gate to go on opening this morning. A lot of us need that. Okay, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, so you get the idea that the angel leads Peter to some relative safety. There's no Roman guard that can like immediately see him and go chasing after him. But they walked the length of one street, and suddenly the angel has a conversation with him and encourages him and says, let me get you some breakfast, and we can hang out. And, uh, you know, no, no, no. All of a sudden, and Peter's standing there like, what just happened? I mean, he's looking around. I can only imagine he's going, I'm not having a vision. This is 
real. Like he's actually coming to himself. He's standing there by himself. So verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people would, were hoping would happen, which was what? Certain death. I love that even the word doubt is in here. I know without a, did Peter doubt? I think so. I think that verse indicates that Peter had some, he might have been sleeping, he might have just been resigned, I guess I'm going to die in the morning, I don't know. But he had some doubts. If, I, if you hear anything this morning, church, hear that it is okay to be in your Jesus journey and have Doubts. What's not okay is to willfully choose to sit in them forever and ever, amen. Get up and get out of your doubts. Move through them. Find a brother or sister. Talk to somebody. Go sit with a counselor. Come see and, and whatever you need to do, but get up on your feet. Acknowledge your doubts and continue to move in and through them so that the presence, kingdom, and power of God can meet you there. Okay. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen to him. Okay, so second thing, this is the God who hears our prayers. All right, verse 12. When this had dawned on him, I mean, I, love, I mean, Luke's kind of like hard on him. It's like, boo. When he finally came to it, oh, he went to where? House of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. Let's just pause here. So he went, when he came to himself, he went to the house of Mary. Now, Mary is the mother of a guy named John Mark. And in my opinion, I, I, most people would agree with this, but in, in my opinion, um, John Mark was the guy that actually wrote the book of Mark. But he did it from the personal eyewitness testimony of a guy named Peter. Okay, so these, these guys are already sort of teamed up, or they will be teamed up to write the Gospel of Mark, which was the first Gospel written, arguably. So Peter gets up, and he goes to the house of Mary. Now, the house of Mary is almost, it's not assuredly, but it's very likely that the house of Mary is the headquarters of the New Testament church, which is pretty amazing that you have a, um, a, a female who is housing the headquarters of the New Testament church. Yeah, pretty amazing. So Peter goes to church headquarters. This is also likely where the upper room was. And the upper room is where Jesus broke bread with his apostles. This is where he went from there into Gethsemane. He was captured and ultimately killed. So this is likely the upper room. And she, was, she was, must have been very, very wealthy because there's a courtyard. So this is church headquarters. Let's keep reading. Um, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, again, what's the church doing? Praying, okay, praying, singing, who knows what all they're doing, but they're, they're, there they go. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Now, what is Rhoda feeling? What is the New Testament church feeling? They're terrified. If someone's knocking at the door, what likely might be happening next? They might break the thing down, drag everybody out, and 
kill them. I mean, that is the, 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 like in America, we've almost never experienced anything like that in terms of faith. I mean, this is like, if we went to Iran today, that's what it's like. You become a Christian in Iran, and they're likely to uh, take you, potentially kill you, imprison you, um, take your spouse, take your kids, take your house. I mean, everything is gone and wiped out. But only in places like Iran or China would we experience something like this. So when Rhoda goes to the door, um, she's not going to open the thing because she's terrified. So what's she do? Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, test, test, oh, good. When, when she recognized Peter's voice, so does she see him? No, okay. She was so overjoyed, she opened the door for him. Oh, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Okay, so now remember, what is the church doing? Lord Jesus, would you please do what? Save Peter. Okay, so Rhoda comes in. Guess who's at the door? And they say, yeah, right. We of little faith are in here praying. We don't believe God can do that. Go back to whatever you're doing, Rhoda. I mean, it's almost like poor Rhoda is having a moment. So Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda, and I can't believe Rhoda didn't just open the door. I'm like, what in the world? But she's so, who knows what she is, flabbergasted, scared, doesn't know what to think. She recognized Peter's voice. She's so overjoyed, she ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind. Jesus, would you deliver Peter from prison? Rhoda, he's here. The church, you're crazy, Jesus. I mean, it is like, this is such a picture of us. It is absolutely bonkers. I was, so, all right, really silly, like, quick interjection here, because uh, you, you know that we're getting ready to move. December 17th, we're going to the First Baptist Activity Center. We're going to hold church there instead of here at Roland Grace. So um, I was in a process, this is really funny, because I was praying, and I was going, Lord, the chairs are hard and squeaky and uncomfortable and people are bringing like these cushions to sit on and the bathrooms are like Peter's prison cell and <laughs> no offense if there's Roland Grice uh, administration in the room. Um, so I'm literally praying I'm going, and Lord the kids spaces are lacking and we can't meet in there or there anymore and Father would you give us another uh, place to meet. So I, uh, a person called me, one of our overseers, and I go to lunch. We're having lunch at Chipotle, and he says, have you considered the First Baptist Activity Center? And I said, no, I like where we are. <laughs> Rhoda, you're out of your mind, sweet girl. It's okay. You go back to your corner and do whatever you're doing. We're going to keep praying with our total lack of faith. Oh, my goodness. All right. <clears throat> Peter came to, oh, where are we? Oh, Rhoda, there we go. Verse 14. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting, I just would love to see that conversation. No, he really is. I heard his voice. And I'm like, why didn't you just open the door, Rhoda? Like, just go back and open the door. That's all you had to do. No, he really is at the door, everybody. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. She kept insisting. They said, it must be his angel. Really interesting. 
Verse 16, but Peter kept on. Y'all let me in. I'm afraid someone's going to get me. I mean, really. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were, oh, people of great faith. God answers our prayers. Okay. This is the God who sees our trials. This is the God who hears our prayers. And we're about to go into this is the God that deals with our enemies. Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. Verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And then he said, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. So Peter's got a price on his head. He cannot stay. He tells them what happened, which either he spoke to Luke directly or Luke heard from them, but that's how this passage got written. Now, who is James? Remember the three Jameses. Now, this is James, the brother of Jesus. And I love this because if your own sibling, like if you sat and talked to either of my siblings, they would tell you all my foibles and all my failures and all the stuff I did wrong and all the ways I was a bad big brother or maybe a good big brother or whatever, but there's not any delusion in them that Michael is not divine, right? There's no delusion. I don't know, if my, is my sister sitting here this morning? She might not be. That's all she's right there. You just go ask her. Is there anything holy about him? She will say, apart from Jesus, he is as carnal as that. That's what she'll tell you. Now, what I love about this is you have James, who is literally the flesh and blood brother of Jesus, who was raised with him, who walked to work with Jesus and Joseph, who did carpentry and who, did, uh, who probably did uh, masonry with Joseph, who lived with him, who ate with him, who saw everything that Jesus ever did. And by the time that Jesus was crucified and then resurrected and then ascended into heaven, he stopped all and said, this truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And not only that, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to write one of the epistles called the book of James, and I'm going to take up my place as the pastor, the second pastor of the church in Jerusalem following the apostle Peter. You can know, if you're a doubter here in the room, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if your own flesh and blood comes to the point where you are convinced that this Jesus was fully God and fully man and lived, died, was resurrected, buried, and ascended, then it is real. Read the book of James if you want some more info on that. And the other brothers and sisters about this. Uh, so Peter said, and then he left for another place because he's got a price on his head. Verse 18, in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers. And I love that Luke even puts this in here as to what had become of Peter. So what are the soldiers doing? They're freaking out. They're yelling in Rome, um, if you lose a soldier, whatever, or excuse me, if you lose a um, prisoner, whatever the prisoner was sentenced to becomes your sentence. Okay? So they're in a full-on, uh, I don't know, kerfuffle. They're in a big fight, uh, a commotion, we'll use the Bible word, among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod uh, had a thorough search made for him, and he uh, did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be... Executed. Tells you again his intent for who? Peter. Yep. Okay. Then Herod. Let's keep reading. I'll pause. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea. 
Um, so he goes uh, from Jerusalem down over to Caesarea, which is like this beautiful white sand, clear water beach. He's got a palace there. It's a gorgeous place. Um, like the, I mean, you got to think like Virgin Islands. That's what it looks like. So he went to Caesarea and he stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So they're asking Herod basically for food. So they have this um, audience with the king. Verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a mere mortal. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Verse 24, climax of the entire chapter, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Um, Let me just cross-reference something quickly. Uh, There's a guy named Josephus who was a Roman and Jewish historian who lived at this time, and he wrote um, Antiquities of the Jews. And he wrote a detailed account of this very same thing. It's fascinating. Anytime you can lay historical with biblical with archaeological kind of across each other, it's just fascinating. But he basically said, um, if you you read um, his account... Um, I've lost it on my page. Where'd it go? He, he basically said um, that Herod was at Caesarea during this time. So his history agrees with Luke's history. That's exactly right. Um, but Josephus, who was not a Christian, was not a believer, adds that Herod's garment was made wholly of fine silver thread, like 100% silver. And then Josephus says, uh, instead of saying that God struck him down and he was eaten with worms, because Josephus is not a Believer, uh, here's what he says. He says, severe pain arose in Herod's belly, and it became so violent he was carried into the palace and died. So historically and biblically, this is true. Like, it happened. And if I took it one step even deeper, here's what I basically say. There's a guy named Dr. Rendell Short, who probably nobody's ever heard of, but he wrote a book called The Bible and Modern Medicine. And when he dealt with this particular passage, um, he tells of a great many people in Asia harboring intestinal worms, which often formed into a tight ball and caused acute intestinal obstruction and their death. So, a while I can't say with certainty what happened to Herod, anytime I'm going to look at the veracity of Scripture, I'm also interested in what does the archaeological data tell us and what does the historical data tell us. And when you look at the historical data from Josephus here, I would say with 100% certainty this is true and accurate. Now, let me see if I can tie this together and then we'll get the worship team and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. The fourth point, third point was this is the God that deals with our enemies. The fourth point is this is the God that uses evil for good and advances his kingdom and his will and his way. The chapter ends with the word of God continue to increase and spread. Now just step back with me from this whole text and think with me. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod is in a rampage. James is killed. Peter is 
imprisoned. Herod is winning. Rome is advancing. The church is scared and running and dying. Everything looks absolutely bleak and hopeless. We are all at the very end of our rope. We are scared we're going to die. And by the end of the chapter, one chapter, James has been promoted to the presence of King Jesus. Peter has been liberated and set free. Herod is dead. Rome is being pushed back. And the word of God is triumphing and spreading. This is the God that does the absolute about face flip. This is the God that will take your imprisonment, take your bondage, take your brokenness, take your pain. And if you will allow him, he will take it and use it for your good and his ultimate glory. In the end, God will always use it for his ultimate glory and your ultimate good. Always. And I would say, here's my great theological truth. Are you ready? This is it. It's a really, it's really good one. Like, you know, we ought to go to seminary to learn this one. Are you ready? Here it is. If it's not good yet, it's not the end yet. So, keep going. That's it. If it's not good yet, it's not the end yet, so keep going. Because this is the character, the timeless, immutable, unchangeable character of God. He will let you go through the trial and the difficulty and the fear, but he will establish his kingdom and his will and his way. Now, I would also step back from this one more time, and I'd say if I took you to the end, Revelation 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 and 22. You have Satan triumphing. You have the church being persecuted and suffering. You have people dying and all of a sudden Christ arises. And with him, he brings his body, his bride, and Satan is defeated. He is sent into eternal darkness. And Christ Jesus, King Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, establishes a new Jerusalem, a new Eden. And his body and his bride are ushered in to dwell there with him forever. Revelation 17, 14 says, they will wage war against the lamb. Who's the lamb? Jesus, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him will be His called, His chosen, and His faithful followers. Now, listen to me. Let me like make this personal for just a second. Tyrants, disease, cancer, type 1 diabetes, asthma. Abuse, even child abuse, suffering, unfaithful spouses, all the things that cause us difficulty and pain will be permitted for a time to exalt themselves against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, against the purposes and plans of God. And for a time, they may thwart your life. They might thwart the church and our church. They might thwart the gospel and the body of Christ. But in the end, and hear me, church, in the end, the 
empire of darkness will be broken in your life and mine. The pain you're in and I'm in will come to an end. The pain the ones we love and those of us who are sharing the journey in the body of Christ together will come to an end. And the power of God will overturn evil. And the resurrection power of King Jesus will arise. And every abuse and every hurt and every fear and every pain and everything you've lived through and everything the ones you've loved have lived through will come to the place where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will take it and flip the entire thing on its head and he will undo the evil that has been done. He will make it as if it never happened and his newness is so good and the creation that he will recreate in us and through us in the body of Christ, both on this planet and in eternity will be so good that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that King Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If it's not good yet, it's not the end yet. So keep going. Amen. If it's not good yet, it's not the end yet. So keep going. As you go today, may you sense the presence of the Lord Jesus going with you. May you know his hand and the comfort of his spirit. May you sense the warmth of his face shining upon you. And may he guide you going before you and coming behind you in all that you do. Amen and amen. Our prayer team will be up here. If you'd like special prayer, come on up. Otherwise, be dismissed and go carrying the person and presence of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.